Please take out your copy of God's Word. Begin turning to Genesis 15. This morning we are going to look at verses 1 through 6. You can find those on page 10 in the Pew Bible. The last two weeks we've taken larger chunks of Scripture and done whole chapters in one sermon. That's difficult for me, but I'm working on varying my pace. I do that in part, though, because I want to slow down a little bit in chapter 15, because chapter 15 is very important. We've said that chapter 12 is the center of Genesis. Everything before is building toward it, and everything after is unpacking it. And that fact makes Genesis 15, along with Genesis 17, very important as well. God is very progressive. And now I don't mean how we use that term culturally or politically today. God, in that sense, is very much not progressive and that he does not change and thus his standards do not change. His requirements of righteousness does not change. When I say that God is progressive, I mean that God often reveals himself and his plans in stages, gradually, step by step. So in theology, you'll often hear the term progressive revelation. And that's what we're going to see happening from Genesis 12 to 15 to 17. They are all about the same thing, the Abrahamic covenant. But each part reveals a little bit more about this world and life-changing arrangement. And that's why these three chapters are so important. In 12, God promises the covenant. This morning, we're going to see God reaffirm those promises. The next week, we're going to see God actually cut the covenant or, or ratify or institute it. Then, when we get to chapter 17, we're going to see that there's even more to this covenant than we thought. And we need to be very careful and precise here because your understanding of the Abrahamic covenant goes a long way in determining your theology as a whole. The difference between us and our Presbyterian brothers is not just that they baptize babies and we don't. The difference is our understanding of the Abrahamic covenant. They baptize babies because of this. We don't because we think that they're wrong in their understanding of this. Your understanding of who the people of God are depends on your understanding of this covenant. Your understanding of eschatology, last things, depends in part on your understanding of this covenant. Your understanding of the Bible and the relationship between the Old Testament and the New Testament depends upon your understanding of this covenant. And I could go on and on and on. But even more important than all of that, as we're going to see this morning, is that your understanding of salvation and your experience of salvation depends in part on your understanding of this covenant. We're going to try to, I'm going to try to hold off on a lot of the complicated covenant conversation until next week. And then particularly in chapter 17, where we have to then try and figure out, wait a second, how does circumcision relate to covenant? People get very confused about this. Is the Abrahamic covenant a covenant of grace? Is it the covenant of grace? If so, what do we do with circumcision? And the warning in 1714 that anyone who is not circumcised will be cut off because he has broken the covenant. Well, that doesn't sound a lot like grace. So if you have no idea what I'm talking about, great, good, I'm excited. Keep coming and we're going to get there. But all of that is my weak attempt to highlight how important these passages are. We've been seeing that God makes promises and God keeps promises. And the way that he does that is covenant. And as the prelude to the official cutting of the covenant, God again comes to Abram and speaks to Abram and reaffirms his promises to Abram. And it's the content of these promises that we need to sort out. Because here's where it's easy to go wrong. We've summarized the promises with three things. We have a blessing, a seed, and a land. God has promised to bless Abram, to do him good. And that blessing is going to come in the form of seed and land. But is that really all that this is about? Is this really just about a people and a place? Or are God's promises here about so much more? 
And it's here in Genesis 15 as God progressively reveals the content of the covenant, the ultimate purpose of the covenant. that we start to understand how big this all is because it is here that we come to one of the most important verses in the whole Bible. And Abram believed the Lord and he counted it to him as righteousness. Listen, that's what these promises are ultimately about. This is all about righteousness. That is what everything is ultimately about. Righteousness. That's what the Bible is ultimately about. Righteousness. And I had missed this almost my entire life. I don't remember ever being taught about this. I remember being told to believe in Jesus and be saved. I remember being told to repeat this prayer. I remember being told to invite Jesus into my heart. But I don't really remember being told very much why? And I don't remember anyone ever talking to me about righteousness. But righteousness is everything. And I want to try to make that case this morning. And it's because God is righteousness. And righteousness is what you were created for. And righteousness is what is required for relationship with God. But righteousness is what you lack. Thus righteousness is what you need. Thus it is actually righteousness that God ultimately promises in these verses. Righteousness is the content of the covenant. Why? It's because of relationship. This is what God is doing. This is what God has been doing from the very beginning. He has created us for himself. He created us for relationship. We ruined relationship with sin. We wrecked it. We were cut off from the God that we were created for. And so right away, God got to work to restore relationship. How? Covenants. That's the main thing I want you to get out of all of this. It may be complicated at times. I'm trying so hard not to do this, but I'm going to at some point, I'm sure. But don't forget this core truth of the covenant. It is about relationship between God and his people. I will be your God and you will be my people. That's covenant. That's what God is doing here. Let's try and see it from the text. Minzy, you're already up. Can you give me a little more volume or I'm not going to make it? I feel myself already starting to strain. Give me, make me louder. Thank you, Minzy. Two big questions here. Can God be trusted? Can man be righteous? Or to personalize it, can you trust God and can you be righteous? And these two questions are closely connected. Remember, Abram has just conquered the king's he has just rejected the king of Sodom's offer of payment or reward. And then God comes to Abram and promises him reward. So first, we need to understand the nature of that reward, your reward. So our first point is that your reward is relationship. But then second, we're going to see that relationship requires righteousness. And then we're going to close by seeing that righteousness requires the seed. Let's read the text, and then we're going to begin walking through that argument, and I'll try to explain what I mean. Genesis chapter 15, I'm going to read for you verses 1 through 6. This is what God wants to say to you today. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Fear not, Abram, I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. But Abram said, Oh, Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue childless, and the heir of my house is Eleazar of Damascus. And Abram said, Behold, you have given me no offspring, and a member of my household will be my heir. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him. This man shall not be your heir, and your own son, your very own son, shall be your heir. And he brought him outside and said, Look toward heaven and number the stars, if you are able to number them. Then he said to him, so shall your offspring be. And he believed the Lord and he counted it to him as righteousness. If you would bow with me and let's begin by going to the uh, Lord in prayer. Father, help us now. We ask. Father, please help the preaching of your word. Please help the hearing and receiving of your word. I pray that you would make us both hearers and doers of your word. I pray that you would set aside any distractions right now. 
I pray that you would capture us with your word. I pray that you would focus our minds and our hearts on you and all your glory and all your goodness and on your, all your righteousness. I pray that you would be, reveal to us our complete and utter lack of righteousness. I pray that you would reveal to us your son, uh, the solution to our righteousness problem. Father, this is such an important and weighty text. We ask for your help, and we ask it in the name of Jesus. Amen. All right, we start with the reward. Uh, we good Protestants sometimes get a little uncomfortable with the concept of reward. We shouldn't, rightly understood, because here God promises Abram reward. Uh, what we need to do is determine what that reward is. Listen to verse 1 again. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Fear not, Abram, I am your shield, and your reward shall be very great. I almost did a whole sermon just on this verse. I resisted. There's a lot I would like to address uh, from this verse that we only have time to briefly touch on. You know, knowing me, that I have to say something about visions. I cannot help it. Uh, forgive me. Uh, there's just so much confusion out there with all the charismatic Pentecostal stuff. Listen, I hired Mark, Mike, not just because he's older than me and wiser than me and godlier than me. I hired him in part because he's like one of the few people I know who is, is as against this stuff as I am. So I brought him in uh, to help uh, support me on this because I think this is really important. And some of the arguments are really, really weak. The argument is, look, God gives Abram a vision in Genesis 15. Therefore, God still gives visions today. And then you get all kinds of crazy, insane things happening as a result. If I won't get into it, if you want to see one of my favorite examples of this, go home and Google Matt Chandler and pirate ship. Just write it down and Google it. Matt Chandler pirate ship. And it'll be one of the most insane things uh, that you have ever heard uh, from a pulpit. It's crazy. I won't waste our time. But it's a perfect example of what will always happen when you step outside the bounds of Scripture. When you open up to this idea that God speaks outside of Scripture, be careful, right? Why we're passionate about this. And we just talked about it with someone last week. Because anything that you need other than God's Word necessarily has to minimize God's Word, right? We cannot say it's sufficient and need other words. Plus, I want you to notice the content of this vision. What comes to Abram in a vision? The word of the Lord. That's the first time in the Bible that that phrase is used. So this vision is specifically a vehicle that God uses in this instance to convey his word. Thus, it cannot be used as a justification for visions that convey something other than God's word. Yes, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. That included dreams and visions. But that doesn't necessarily then automatically mean that he still does that today. Now he has spoken to us by his son. And he does it through his word. That word that is living and active. That word that is able to make you wise for salvation. That word that is able to make you complete, equipped for every good work. You don't need anything but this word. And it is the word that God gives to Abram in this vision. Listen, that, by the way, is always what God does through dreams and visions in the Bible. Listen, I think this is true. Now go look this up and then come back to me next week and try to prove me wrong. I, I'm not entirely sure, but I'm making this claim. Uh, there's not a single instance in the Bible of God coming to someone in a dream or a vision and giving them some sort of personal revelation just about their personal life. It doesn't happen once. And that's what dreams and visions have become today. God told me I was going to be healed. God told me I was going to have a kid. God told me I was going to get this job. Never happens in the whole Bible. The content of biblical dreams and visions are always related to redemptive history, to God's plan uh, to save his people. It's always about God revealing what he is going to do next to pursue and rescue and save his people every time. That's what the dreams and visions are for. And so that's exactly what the content of Abram's vision is. The word of the Lord came to Abram. Again, again, first time that phrase is used in the Bible. It's used in verse 1 and in verse 4 in this passage. Not a single other time in the book of Genesis is it used again, but it will be used a whole lot later when we get to the prophets. This is like the prophetic formula. This is what introduces a revelation to God's, uh, a revelation given to one of God's 
prophets. Again, not a personal revelation, but a prophetic revelation related to God's people and plan of salvation. So if last week, remember, chapter 14, we saw Abram as king. Well, here we are seeing Abram as prophet. And this will be stated explicitly later in chapter 20, verse 7, when God will tell Abimelech to give Sarah back to Abraham. Why? For he is a prophet. So we've got king, Abram. We've got prophet, Abram. We have to keep going in the story and see if we get anything else. And so God's word in verse 1 comes to God's prophet. What is the content of that word? Oh, it's wonderful. Fear not. First time we get that in the Bible, which is, uh, yeah, I've seen a lot of different things, but I think this is the most frequent command in Scripture. Fear not. Do not be afraid. Do not fear. What a wonderful command. And don't miss that this is a command. And what a great example that God's commandments truly are not burdensome. God knows that his sinful people in a sin-cursed world will have many opportunities to fear and a tendency to do so. But he knows our frame. And so the God of all comfort gives Abram and you this comforting word, fear not. Why, though? Is this the word that God gives Abram? Why does he tell him to fear not? You don't need to tell someone not to fear unless they are fearing something. So why is Abram afraid? Well, good question. There are a couple of possibilities. A lot of people will look back to chapter 14 and connect Abram's fear to the events there. Remember, he's just defeated this international coalition of four great and mighty kings. Uh, Well, big and powerful kings don't generally take defeat and humiliation lying down. Maybe they'll come back. Maybe they'll regather their forces and come after Abram for revenge. And maybe it's the potential of that reprisal that Abram fears. I think that's unlikely. There's nothing in 14 that indicates uh, fear on Abram's part at all of these kings and their armies. So I don't think he's all of a sudden afraid now in chapter 14. The simplest answer, instead of looking back, is to look Forward. Abram's fears are related to the promises. The promise has been a seed, a son. But in verses 2 and 3, it's clear that Abram's concern is the fact that he, as of yet, has no seed and has no son. And that fact that this is the promise of God, uh, it's the one that he first reaffirms to Abram, makes this likely kind of what Abram is fearing. But that might not be the only reason that God says, fear not. Think of some of the other appearances of angels in Scripture. For example, consider Zechariah and Luke chapter 1. There's no indication that there is anything contextually that Zechariah has to fear. He's serving in the temple. He's doing his job. And yet the first words out of the angel's mouth, do not be afraid. Why? Because angels are terrifying. They are holy. We are not. They are not cute, cuddly, precious moments, figurines. They are awesome and mighty. They are God's messengers. They are guardians of God's holiness. How much more terrifying, then, is an appearance of God himself? Peter just led us wonderfully Wednesday night in Job 38 and 39 when God reveals himself to Job in a whirlwind, proclaiming his absolute sovereignty, his power, his knowledge, his presence, his transcendent Greatness. He is, as Melchizedek just said in back to chapter 14, God most high. He is God. We are not. He is great. We are not. He is big. We are not. He is holy. We are not. And it is this infinite creator creature gap that should lead us to fear this God. He is not like us. I think that's in part why his first words are do not fear. Because this great God is also a gracious God. He is kind and merciful, tender and compassionate with his people. Do not fear Abram. So it's not the armies that Abram is fearing. It's God himself that Abram should fear. And the implication could be that it is not nearly as fearful to encounter a superior enemy on the battlefield that wants to kill you than it is to encounter God himself. And consider how backwards we tend to get this. Consider how fearful we often are of man having to go out walking at night, of having to speak publicly, of having our co-workers finding out we're Christians and making fun of us, of our desire to be well-liked and well-thought of by the world. How much of what we do is motivated by fear of man? And how little in comparison are the things that we do that are actually motivated by the fear 
of God. How foolish to fear other men and not to fear God. Think about it. How much of what you do, how you dress, uh, how you talk, uh, what you do, how much of that is motivated by a desire to look a certain way and be perceived a certain way by man? How much time do you give to social media to be perceived in a certain way by man? How little time and attention do you give to the infinitely more important question of how you are perceived by God himself? See, we tend to fear that which we should not fear and don't fear at all the one thing that we should fear. Repent. God is to be feared. But it is that fact that makes his first words here so kind and wonderful. Fear not. Why not? Well, God goes on to tell him. He tells Abram why. Why he does not need to fear him. Look at verse 1 again. I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. My shields protect. Shields keep you safe. So, uh, pretty obvious metaphor. God protects. God keeps his people safe. There is something that you are either fearing or are tempted to fear right now. There are reasons to fear all around us all the time. As I said, in a sin-cursed world, there is much to fear. But in Christ, God himself has your shield, has your protection. He doesn't just tell you not to fear. He tells you why you don't need to. Because he himself is keeping you and guarding you. The God of all that greatness and bigness is the shield of you in all your weakness and littleness. So take heart. Be encouraged. And we've, we've ruined the word encouraged, by the way. Right? Today it means a little more than make someone feel better about themselves. Or, hey, you did a good job, man. Um, no, but you can hear what that word literally meant. It means to, to put courage in, uh, to, to fill with courage. And there is nothing that can fill you with more confidence, not self-confidence, but, but good confidence, God confidence, and courage than the fact that this great God himself is your shield. But that's not all that he is. He also tells Abram, your reward shall be very great. But here's where we need to pause. And here's where we need to try to sort this out. Because if you're reading the King James or a couple other translations, you may have noticed a difference. The King James says this, I am thy shield and thy exceeding great reward. In other words, in that translation, it's not your reward shall be great, but I am your great reward. Which is it? Good question. Uh, Far greater Hebrew minds than mine Uh, disagree. I'm not going to solve that here. Both translations are possible from the Hebrew. The Hebrew is hard. For what it's worth, I prefer the King James translation. That God is not promising Abram some reward, but that he himself is that exceedingly great reward. The thing that Abram gets here is God himself. As the, uh, the title of one of Piper's books puts it, God is The gospel, the thing we get in the gospel is God himself. He is the reward. He is what this whole thing is about. And listen, I'm sure I don't always get this right, but there is a great difference in preaching the benefits you get from Christ and preaching Christ. So much preaching is not actually really about Christ. It's all about you and what you can get out of it. You can get forgiveness. You can get eternal life. You can be with your loved ones in heaven forever. You can walk on streets of gold. You can be relieved of your guilt. You can feel better about yourself. You can have nice, feel-good religious experiences. It's a slight but hugely significant difference. Is what you love and long for Christ himself? Or is what you love and long for, what you think about, why you come here, more about what you can get from him? Nobody wants to go to hell. I don't want to go to hell. Nobody wants to go to hell. Do you want Christ? Those are different questions. Remember, we read it at the very beginning of the service. What is it that David wants? What's the one thing? Psalm 27. One thing I have asked of the Lord that I will seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord. Is is that what you want? 
Is your desire, first and foremost, God himself in Christ? He is the ultimate reward. He is what we get, which is why I prefer the King James translation. And so the title of this first point is that relationship is the reward. Relationship with God himself. This is what God is doing. This is ultimately what God is promising Abram. And this is what he offers you in the gospel, knowing God. And this is eternal life. John 17, 3. That's why heaven is so good, because that's where God is. That's why hell is so bad, because that's where God is not. Or more accurately, we would say hell is actually where God is in all his wrath and rage and righteous judgment against sin. Reality is about relationship With God. The Bible is about relationship with God. Covenant is about relationship with God. God is making promises to Abram. And those promises are ultimately God himself. I am your exceedingly great reward. But that raises a problem. You know what the problem is. Righteousness is the problem. Because relationship with a perfectly righteous God requires perfect Righteousness, And this is what explains verse 6. Skip to verse 6, and then we're going to come back to the middle. Look at verse 6. And he, Abram, believed the Lord, and he, the Lord, counted it to him, Abram, as righteousness. Honestly, that seems sort of strange at first. God has just reaffirmed his promise to Abram. Abram was worried that, he didn't, that because he didn't have a son, this, this Eliezer fellow would be his heir. And God says, no, your own son will be your heir. And it's after that that we get verse 6. What in the world does Abram, having a son, and Abram's belief in that fact, have to do with righteousness? Well, everything, of course. But to understand that, we're going to have to go back uh, to our need to understand what these promises are really about what this covenant is really about. Again, this is the main thing I want to drill into your brain this morning. And so to do that, we've got to go back. We've got to go back to the beginning of the book, back to the covenant that comes before this covenant. What was God doing at the beginning? Creating everything. We know that. But I think we often miss the fact that in creating, what God is really doing is building. What does he create? A place and a people. And as the creator of these things, as the author, as their source, he has rights over them. They are his. And thus, he is the king who has created a place and put a people in that place. King, place, people. What do you have there? You have a kingdom. And so the title of our very first sermon, all the way back last year in Genesis 1-1, was The King Creates his kingdom. So in Genesis 1 and 2, you have God's people in God's place under God's rule. That's the kingdom. It is a blessing to be in that kingdom. And what does that blessing consist of? A land and a seed, a people and a place. And the point of that place was for the people to be with their God. But remember, this God who is king, who is perfect, must also then be perfectly righteous. He is perfect in everything. Perfect in righteousness. Thus, he created his people to be perfectly righteous. So that they could know him and relate to him and be with him and love him. Like any good relationship, there must be law. God's kingdom was all about love. God with his people. But this is so hard for us today in 21st century America to understand. But love and law, contrary to what everyone says, love and law go together. And so God gives his good law to his people. And it was kind. Even so many pastors are like, oh, the law is so bad. No, the law is so good. And God is so kind to give us his law. He says, don't rebel against me. He's saying, I'm good. I'm out for your good. So love me. Trust me. Don't disobey me. Do not eat of this one tree. Eat of it and you will surely die. That tree was death. But there was another tree. Literally, the tree of life. Disobey me, you get death. Obey me, you get life. God's people must be righteous. That just means right and good. Righteousness is simply right 
Ness. It is a behavior that conforms to a standard. As we're going to see, behavior that conforms to a covenant. And since God is the standard and he is perfectly righteous, the standard is perfectly righteous. And so God's people are in God's place and God gives them his good law and he gives him the rewards and the consequences of keeping or breaking that law. What do we then have there? We have a covenant. And this is what we looked at way back. This is called the covenant of works. Do this and live. Um, you know the story. I got to summarize. Uh, they do not do this. They do not obey. They are unrighteous. And so they die. They are cut off. They are cast out. They are removed from the place of God's presence. Unrighteous man cannot be right with righteous God. Don't forget what God immediately does. In the midst of righteous judgment, there is a promise of grace. Remember, Genesis 3.15 is so important. A promise of redemption. And what's the promise? What's the content of that promise? It's a seed, a son, a seed of the woman who will crush the head of Satan. And this is what we call the first gospel. God is promising that he is going to do something about our sin, about our unrighteousness, and that something depends upon a seed. So in the beginning, God's righteous seed was in God's perfect place, God's perfect land. But God's seed fell into unrighteousness, and then they were removed from the land. What then, just a few chapters later, does God come and promise to Abram in Genesis 12? A land and a seed, right? a seed that would restore God's people to God's land, the land that they were removed from because of unrighteousness, which means that somehow this seed was going to restore and establish righteousness because the land is all about it's not about the nation of Israel. It's not about what's going on in the Middle East. The land is about being in relationship with God. That's what the land represents. Relationship requires righteousness. But we don't have it. You don't have it. Romans 3.10. None is righteous. No, not one. And so point number three. Righteousness requires the seed. Listen, this is why I don't care about the right translation of verse one. Is it, I am your exceedingly great reward, or is it your reward shall be very great. It doesn't matter because they are saying the exact same thing. Think about it. If it's your reward shall be very great, the following verses specifically tell us what God means. Look at verse 2. Surely not a good sign when you're getting to the second verse this late in the sermon. Fear not. We'll get there. Verse 2. Abram has questions. He has concerns. They are understandable. What will you give me? What reward? For I continue childless. Three, behold, you have given me no offspring or no seed in the King James. Can you feel Abram's heart there? Right? Can you feel his longing? And notice how he brings it out openly and honestly before the Lord. Notice some people accuse Abram for what he's doing here. I think that's wrong. Notice how he isn't rebuked for it but that he is answered and so kindly comforted. As faith will sometimes wrestle and struggle, it is okay to be confused. It is okay to ask questions. It is okay to voice those questions before the Lord. Just go read the Psalms. It is not okay to accuse. It is not okay to be angry. But there is such a thing as faith humbly going before the Lord in its weakness with its doubts and its fears. That's what Abram is doing here. And look how gracious the Lord is to him. Verse four, the word of the Lord comes again. And guys, that's what God's word does. It comforts. God's word is so good. You don't need something else. Listen to this good word of Abram. And as we'll see, good word to all of us. This man shall not be your heir. Your very own son shall be your heir. Verse five, God is so kind that he not only gives him a word, but a sign. And he brought him outside and said, look toward heaven and number the stars. If you are able to number them, you're not. Then he said to him, so shall your offspring be, or again, so shall your seed be. 
Are you, are you, are you see, I don't know if I'm making it clear, clear or not. Do you see the connection? Do you understand what's going on here in the seed? Do you see how this is so much bigger than Abram just wanting a kid? Of course he wants a kid. It's good to want a kid. Oh, I was going to make a joke about I want a kid, but I don't know if I do. Um, we're, we're, arguing, we're arguing about it right now. Uh, but this is uh, not actually arguing. But this is so much more than Abram wanting a kid. This is about a seed. The Seed. Abram is not just believing that he will have a kid and it is then counted to him as righteousness. That doesn't make any sense. He's believing in the seed. God promises him a seed here. God promised a snake crushing seed in Genesis 3.15 and Genesis 12.3. God promises Abram that in and through him all the families of the earth shall be blessed. What? How? The seed. Because this is not just about Abram having a kid. This is not just about the physical nation of Israel or the physical land of Israel. This is about God's great plan and promise to rescue his people from sin and Satan and death. Listen, how can he do that? Because don't forget what we just talked about from Genesis 2. There is a prior covenant in play. There is a covenant of Works And we are, all of us, born into the covenant of works in Adam. And the covenant of works says, obey me and you can live. Have you ever wondered why every other religion basically teaches the same thing? Have you ever wondered why they all kind of come down to this core principle of of here is what you must do? You need to be a good person. You need to keep these rules. You need to follow these rituals. You ever wondered why that thread runs through every religion over the course of all time and all places? It's because of the covenant of works. It's because this is written on our hearts. Everyone knows, Romans 1, deep down, that there is a God and that he is good and righteous and perfectly so. And that as creator, he is also lawgiver. And as lawgiver, he is also the law. He is the standard. We all of us know that we have to live up to that standard. We know that we have to be good. That's what, why every other religion is all about the works that you must do because of this original covenant of works. And so this covenant of works says, be righteous. And so Jesus tells us in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5.20 that unless your righteousness exceeds the scribes and the Pharisees, in other words, the, the most righteous ones or the ones that people thought were the most righteous, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. You see how Jesus there connects righteousness and entrance into the kingdom. But then he goes on in Matthew 5, 48, you must be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. And this is nothing new. Leviticus 19, 2, be holy for I, the Lord your God, am holy. Deuteronomy 18, 13, you must be blameless before the Lord your God. Righteousness has always been the requirement for relationship with the Lord. And so everyone out there is doing whatever they can, whatever ritual, whatever pillars or whatever eightfold path or whatever sacraments or whatever secular activity that you're doing to establish some sort of righteousness. Because everybody knows this. And so when we fell into unrighteousness and sin in Adam, and God promises them to come and crush the head of the snake, the tempter, the, the, the introducer of the unrighteousness that separates God from his people, what is God promising in the promise of the crushing of Satan? He is promising a righteous seed. He is promising someone who can perfectly keep and fulfill that covenant of works. Someone who would and could obey me and live. Someone who would fulfill all righteousness. And so when John the Baptist is confused about why in the world would this Jesus want to undergo a baptism for the repentance of sins, Jesus signals for us from the very beginning what he is about and why he has come when he says that it is fitting to fulfill all righteousness because he's the seed he's the snake crusher he's the solution to your righteousness problem Listen, that's why the translation of verse one doesn't matter if the translation is your reward shall be very great and the reward is the promised seed 
then ultimately God is promising Abram the same thing. I am your exceedingly great reward. I am going to give you this seed which will bring you back to me and make me your exceedingly great reward. The point of the seed is to bring us back to God. And that is what God has been about and doing from the very beginning. And again, this is why covenant. This is why land. This is why seed. All of it is about God rescuing and redeeming his people to bring them back to him so that he can be their God and they can be his people. So in promising Abram the very great reward of a son from whom would ultimately come the seed, Jesus Christ, God is ultimately promising himself to Abram and thus to you. He's ultimately promising and reaffirming his promise from Genesis 3.15 that he was going to do something so that he himself can once again be our very great reward. And that's exactly what Jesus does. And he doesn't just do it through his death. He also does it through his life. Remember, the covenant of work says you must be righteous to be in relationship with me. You all failed to be righteous. The covenant of works requires death for failing to be righteous. You all owe death for failing to be righteous. And Jesus comes to do This is why he doesn't just come as an adult and die. This is why he first came and lived 30 years of perfect life. Absolutely perfect, righteous life. God promised a seed. The only way we could be freed from the demands of this covenant of works is for someone to come and actually be perfectly righteous and so fulfill that covenant. And Jesus came to do that for his people in their But there's also the death debt that is owed. God is just. Sin must be punished. The wages of sin must be death. And so Jesus also came to do that for his people in their place. And it is all of it about righteousness. Relationship with God requires righteousness. You don't have it. I don't have it. And so Christ came to do it for us and to give us the righteousness that we need. Uh, Look quickly at Romans uh, chapter 3. Start wrapping up there. Start wrapping up. 941, sorry. Romans 3, page 941. Look at verse 21. You see there in verse 21 where it says the righteousness of God has been Manifest. The book of Romans is all about righteousness. The most important, theologically robust explanation of the gospel is all about righteousness. Because righteousness is everything. Uh, So, 21. It's been manifested. Look again at 22. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believed. 23, we know that one. All have sinned. Look at 24. And are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Do you know what that word justified is? It's the same word we just saw in 21 and 22. It's a verb. It's a different form. There's some slight difference, but it's the same root word of righteous. I wish to make that connection clear. Translators would just translate this declared righteous. Justification is being declared righteous. The righteous God declares his unrighteous people to be righteous through the work of Jesus Christ in their place. It's 2 Corinthians 5 21. For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin. In other words he was righteous but God put our sin on him so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. It's all about righteousness. It is in Christ that we are Considered, counted, reckoned, treated as if we were righteous. And this is what we call the the core doctrine of justification by faith. The doctrine Luther says the church stands or falls upon. The doctrine Calvin says is the hinge or the foundation upon which all true religion depends. Listen, this is why Rome is so wrong. That that entire church, we technically shouldn't even call it a church, if the main thing that makes a church is the right preaching of the gospel. Rome does not do that. And it's because of this core foundational point on which they are terribly wrong. They say you must be righteous. You must become 
righteous. You must make yourself righteous by your own works and by keeping the superstitious rituals of the sacraments. But that's not what Genesis 15, 6 says. And that's not what Paul says in the two places he quotes this. We read Galatians 3. It's there below you in Romans chapter 4. Abram believed the Lord. And it's all of what we just discussed that Abram is believing. Remember we read that the gospel was preached beforehand to Abraham. And we think, a land and a sea, what in the world? Why? No, it's because this is what the land and the seed are about, what God is doing to save his people. That's the gospel. That's what Abram is believing. And that's why that is counted to him as righteousness. Don't miss that. He is not righteous. Remember, he, is a, he was a pagan worshiper of false gods. It doesn't say he started to obey and so he actually became righteous, so he actually was righteous. No, it says he was counted as Righteous. He was considered in the eyes of God to be righteous when he was not. How? Why? Jesus Christ. What we often call the doctrine of imputation. Our sin is reckoned to Christ's account. Again, 2 Corinthians 5 again. His righteousness is reckoned to our account. Brothers and sisters, we were all of us supposed to be righteous. And we all of us have failed miserably. And there was nothing that we could do to make ourselves righteous. But there was one thing God could do. Here's why we have to hold to the exclusivity of Christ so strongly and be so bold about this. Because here's the only thing that could be done. Here's the only thing that could save us. The one thing that he has, God has been about from the beginning. The sending of his own son. The promised seed to take on flesh. Why? We still understand why. To fulfill the covenant of works to fulfill all righteousness for us and to die in our place, paying our penalty. So that when we believe in him, when we are united to him by grace through faith, right? Remember God is our shield, but here's Christ as our shield and as our covering. His righteousness is counted as if it was our own righteousness. That's what God is promising to Abram in the seed. That's what Abram is believing. He is trusting God. And he is taking God at his word that he is doing something to redeem his people so he himself can be their exceedingly great reward. That's what the Abrahamic covenant is all about. God is at work to bring his people back to him and he is going to do it through Abram's seed, God's son, Jesus Christ. The righteous God's perfect plan to send his righteous son to live and die for his unrighteous people to take on their unrighteousness so that they could put on his righteousness and be restored back to relationship with the righteous God. That's the whole story of the Bible. And it is all about righteousness. Do you believe? And let's be clear. Faith is not what you do to be saved. This is how I kind of grew up understanding it. It's probably my own fault. Your faith is not what you add to Christ's work to be saved. It's like Christ, he's done like 99.9%. He's gotten so close. He's done all, you just gotta reach out and take the last step and put your, here's this tiny little work that you've gotta add to. No, oh, that, oh, so deadly. Salvation is entirely the work of Christ. And then that's why, I like to do this to be provocative sometimes. If we wanna be accurate, we must say that salvation is only and always ever by works. No one is saved apart from works. You cannot be saved apart from works, but not your works, right? the works of another in your place. There must be works to fulfill righteousness and pay for unrighteousness, but Christ does the work. And that's why we emphasize that salvation for us is only by faith. As we cling to him in trust, we then receive the work he has done in our place. And then as a result, the perfectly righteous God accepts us and treats us as if we were perfectly righteous. Well, I've sinned against some of you. Some of you have sinned against me. You've all probably sinned. Husbands and wives, you've sinned against each other the most of anyone in here. You guys know each other the best. You know how unrighteous your spouse is. You guys know me pretty well. In God's eyes, I am counted perfectly righteous. And I did nothing for it. And I did nothing to earn it. That is, that, listen, that's, that's my only hope. That's why the gospel is such good news. Listen, that's why we have to be so annoyed 
about doctrine. Because you, you lose this. You lose everything. We're not just kind of saying the same thing because they say the words Jesus and faith and grace. No, we're saying fundamentally different things. I am saying I have no hope in myself. And I can do nothing but that Christ has done everything to make me not kind of righteous, to not get me to zero, to not add this lap, to, to make me perfectly righteous in God's eyes. Nothing can separate me from the love of God in Christ Jesus, my Lord. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. It's because of this. It's not because you're so great. You're not. It's not because I'm so great. I was reading something on Calvin this week, and he said that the beauty of preaching is that people are, sit, are, are, are stuck there listening to someone who is less righteous than they are. But it's God's word that is being proclaimed. And so the authority and the power is there in God's word, not in me. There are none of us righteous, but in Christ, we are all perfectly righteous in God's eyes. I just want you to see that that's the most amazing and comforting and encouraging and life-giving truth in the world. You and all your unrighteousness can be right with and righteous in the eyes of the perfectly righteous God. That's, that's what you are made for. Relationship through righteousness given as a gift of grace through faith in Jesus Christ. Do you believe? And if you do, rejoice that you are counted righteous. Listen, if you do not believe, if you are here and this is all new and you you're not a believer. You have not been born again by God's grace given to you through faith in Jesus Christ. Then repent. Right? Repent from your sin and unrighteousness and believe. You're not righteous. You know that you have to be. You know you're trying to establish your own goodness and your own righteousness. Let me tell you, I've tried. Can't do it because you have to be perfect and you're already not. But here is the offer from God himself. It says, come to me and you can be counted righteous by being united to my son, Jesus Christ, by putting your faith and your hope, call out to the righteous one who lived and died in the place of sinners. Believe and receive the gift of righteousness and be restored to right relationship with God. This is the covenants. This is what they're about. The reward is relationship through righteousness, through faith in the promised seed. If you would, bow with me and let's close with a word of prayer. Father, we thank you for your word. Father, my only hope now is your promise that your word is living and active. Your promise that your word does not return to your vo you void. Your promise that your word is able to make uh, your people wise for salvation. And so now I, I only ask um, that your word uh, would do its work uh, by your spirit. Father, I thank you. But in Christ, we are considered righteous in your eyes. That means we are with you. That means you are with us. That means we are yours, your sons and daughters. That means you are our Father. Forgive us for how unimpressed we are with that sometimes. Forgive us for how caught up we are with other things that just don't matter. Father, help us to rest in and delight in the fact that you, the righteous God, have sent your son to die so that we could be your righteous people. And Father, I pray that that would be our identity. I pray that that would be what gets us out of bed. I pray that that would be uh, the motivation uh, for all that we do. Father, help us. We thank you that our hope is not in ourself. We thank you that it's completely in Jesus Christ. So show us that and teach us to live as if that was actually true. Father, I do pray for anyone here who does not know you. Father, make it clear that they are not righteous. Show them how they have been doing everything to try and to establish their own righteousness because they think that if they can be a pretty good person, uh, then they'll be good enough. Father, show them that there is none righteous. And show them the beauty of your son, Jesus Christ. Father, and save them from their sins. And we thank you for your word. And we thank you and pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.